You ever seen a Facebook post or a greetings card with a saying that starts with something like, life is a journey. It's usually followed by some kind of ethereal or airy-fairy saying like this one. Uh, life is a journey. Life is like a journey between human being and being human. You need to put that kind of accent on, that kind of voice whenever you say things like this. It makes it sound more spiritual. But it's not. It's tat. It's rubbish. Or this was my favorite one. Um, life is a journey in a jungle where you have to find your way with your own light. If you love the jungle, then the whole world becomes your home. You can never get lost. You become divine. Yeah, exactly. Honestly, see if you just put a fancy picture behind something and put these kind of words, you know, thousands of people will like it on Pinterest or Facebook. Oh, it's absolutely mind-numbing. But I don't really like these posts. And I've never really liked the life as a journey thing. I think even Christian authors have tried at times to make some of the same comparisons. The Christian life is like a journey. And to be honest, I've never really liked it, except for, of course, John Bunyan and Pilgrim's Progress. But my distaste comes from reading these things that just, they just sound too much like pad spirituality, like something that Oprah or Rob Bell would say. It even sounds new agey. But I've been converted. I've been converted in my sabbatical as I've studied God's word more. And I can't believe I'm about to say this, but the Christian life is like a journey. <laughs> Two journeys, actually, taking place at one and the same time, one internal, one external. One very personal, the other very global. And in Christianity, two things are on the move. The gospel and the believer. The gospel and the believer. And it's helpful to think of these two movements in terms of a journey because when, with any journey, what do you think of? You think of movement, you think of progress. I mean, that's what sat-navs and in-flight maps are made for. They show us how far we've advanced on our journeys from A to B. Well, the Bible teaches that both the gospel and the believer are on the move. Uh, the gospel is on a journey from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And it's a journey towards completion. We're going to think about that a bit more next week. But the believer is on a journey also. The believer is on a journey from salvation, that point of first believing, to glorification. And it's a journey in the Christian life towards perfection. And that's going to be our subject today. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to take a look at the believer's journey towards perfection. This thing called sanctification, which is essentially my study topic for, um, for, for my study leave. Uh, it had been over the last uh, three months. Uh, so hopefully we'll get finished by two o'clock, but uh, let's pray and we'll see how we go. Father, uh, your son, the Lord Jesus, prayed and asked you to sanctify his followers by the truth. Not just those there and then, but us here today and throughout the ages, stating explicitly, of course, that your word is truth. Please do this sanctifying work in us today, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.
Right, here's what we're going to do as we look at this uh, journey of the believer toward perfection. I want to give us three main points, uh, and here's what they are. Number one, I want to map out the journey. Number two, I want us to know the road conditions, so what is it actually like? And three, what does it actually mean for us? Let's uh, plan for the journey. So map out the journey, know the road conditions, plan for the journey. Simple. Number one, mapping out the journey. So what does the journey of the Christian life look like ordinarily? Well, like any journey, there is a starting point from A and the destination to B. That's what you move towards. And then there's just this road in between. And to help us grasp what this looks like for us, I'm not going to pin on a map, but I'm going to plot a graph. And uh, if we can have the image on screen, I've used this before. Some of you will recognize this. And I just want to use this in point one to uh, provide a little bit of context and catch up. Now, this, uh, this, this is the Christian life, really. Uh, the axis on the left there is the righteousness axis, not percent righteous at the bottom, 100% righteousness at the top. Uh, the bottom line is your lifeline. And that yellow dot on the left there is the day you were born. Uh, now, the Bible says that we were born sinners. That's why we're unrighteous from the beginning. That's why it's down at the bottom. Anyway, uh, but that's not where this journey towards perfection really begins. No, it begins, this departure point that I've been talking about is a day of salvation. That is when the Christian life truly begins. Uh, another word for this, of course, is justification. So this is the day of salvation marked by this green dot here where God opens your eyes to see your sin for all its pervasive, ugly, wrath deserving qualities and at the same time to see God's son for all of his glorious freeing wrath absorbing redemption obtained for you on the day he died and reinforced and applied on the day he rose and justification is this other word for salvation that's more of the legal term um, God the judge has handed you a not guilty verdict on account of the work of Jesus Christ, which means that you are declared righteous in his sight. Now that is an overall declaration right at that point, which means that you are in God's eyes perfect. It is as if, positionally perfect that is, it is as if you have never sinned when you are robed, clothed, if you like, in the righteousness of Jesus, Okay. You're positionally perfect in God's eyes, as we saw in Hebrews 10 a few months ago. By one sacrifice, that is the sacrifice of Jesus, God has made perfect forever. He's made you perfect forever. Those who are being made holy. So he has made you positionally perfect, though he is continually making you perfect in the day-to-day -day of the Christian life. Now this day of salvation, this green dot, if you like, marks the start of the journey and its newness of life is one of the ways the Bible often uses to describe it. As Romans chapter 6 verse 4 says that we were buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a what? A new life. Okay? You are, as Jesus said in John 3, born again. There's a new beginning. Now, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, I want you to see that this is one of the most glorious things about the Christian faith. It is a new life. It is this fresh start. New life is held out to everybody without discrimination and without condition. 
Now, I don't know where you're at. If suffering has left you drained, maybe with unanswered questions, maybe you just want to shake your fist even at the concept of God, never mind God himself. Or if you've not been able to wash away the guilt and shame of all the wrong things that you've done in your life and you feel weighed down by those things. Or if all the delicacies of the world have ended up not satisfying you, then I want you to know that you can have new life through faith in Jesus Christ today by turning away from your sin in sorrow over it and turning to Christ to take hold of him and all the promises that he holds out to you. Forgiveness, life in his name now, life with him in heaven after you die. Ask someone about this. Ask the person that brought you or speak to the prayer team after the service. They'll be down here at the front. They'd love to talk to you about this. Or come down to the welcome uh, sofas down there. We'd love to chat to you about this. It's very, very important. You believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you can begin the journey I'm talking about here today. Do that. Well, what about this uh, destination? Where exactly are we headed? We've got the starting point. That's our... Uh, salvation or justification, the destination, glorification. Uh, We're headed towards perfection, and glorification is one of the key words the Bible uses to describe this. And this is what's referenced in Romans 8, the passage I read a few moments ago. For those God God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's the perfect one. So to be conformed to his image is to be perfect like him. It's the sinlessness of Jesus that explains and sets him out as the true picture of true humanity. Humanity was marred by sin, but he's the one who stood tall under temptation, who went through all of life and was without sin. That's why he was glorified. That's why Philippians 2 said he was lifted up to the highest place and given the name that's above every name for his sinless perfection. And of those, so it says, so for those God foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, the perfect one, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. In other words, there are more to follow. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. So what is God doing with those he justifies? What does he promise to do? to glorify them. And conformity to Christ, glorification is that destination. That's God's purpose. And we will either be glorified on the day that we die and enter into his presence for to be absent from the body is present with the Lord or when Christ returns and we'll be changed in an instant. Now, this is God's purpose. He is making us holy like Christ is. This is what the redemption of all creation And the redemption of sons and daughters, as Romans 8 talks about in full, that's where we're headed. It's where the whole world world is headed. But what about the journey? Well, this bit in the middle between justification and glorification, between salvation and perfection, is sanctification. And what does sanctification assume? Progress. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 talks about, as I mentioned earlier on. And we all who with unveiled faces, in other words, unable to see, contemplate, consider, meditate on, love looking at the Lord's glory. Who's he talking about here? It's Jesus. 
And we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So a transformation is taking place, and the Holy Spirit is at work in doing it. So this bit in between, uh, between Romans 8.29 and 2 Corinthians 3.18 is where we who have been saved are being progressively made holy. The Christian life then, this journey, is a bit-by-bit transformation into the likeness of Jesus. Now, let me ask you, uh, no graph is perfect, by the way, but let me ask you, what do you think your graph would look like just now? If you were to plot the day that you were saved on this graph, and let's just imagine we're going to live till we're like 85. Some of you are like, I'm going to have to go back in time. Uh, but let's imagine you lived a long life. What, what, if you were to depict your life so far, what would it look like as a line? It's hard to figure it out, isn't it? I mean, yes, there is no doubt that this conformity to Christ, this bit-by-bit -bit transformation into the likeness of Jesus, it assumes and presumes we'll make progress, but life is hard, things happen. Our graphs take on different forms. This one, admittedly, looks like it takes a few dips at points, but fundamentally there is obvious growth. In holiness, there's transformation taking place. But no graph can summarize everyone's journey. There are various, various uh, ways that it changes. I mean, let me show you five quick variations. You can have this. You can have the deathbed conversion. So someone who becomes a Christian on their deathbed. I mean, that must be one of the most hopeful graphs for our evangelism, don't you think? That people who are close to death can turn to Christ and have their sins forgiven. The sanctification journey, if you like, is a short one. Or there's a serious moral failure graph. This might look like King David's chart, for example. Or a late bloomer graph. We've all, I'm sure, met many people who've just kind of moseyed along in their faith and all of a sudden they've just come to understand and grasp something about the Christian life and they've just taken off in their commitment to the Lord, their devotion to him. People comment on the way that trans they're transformed. Lives are change changing for them. And then there's those who have perhaps forsaken their first love. Those who have, maybe as time has progressed, Maybe doubts have weighed in on them. Life has been hard in some particular way. And people who were once hot for the Lord, keen to serve him in lots of different ways, sharing the gospel with lots of different people, meeting regularly in the church family for discipleship and small groups. And yet, in the latter years, I've said, no, no, those things aren't really as important to me anymore. I'm disinterested now. Maybe we've met people who are like that. Maybe you are currently in that situation. Or lastly, I mean, for example, you can show a wasted life. Um, this might be the scariest graph of them all. Uh, this might describe someone who has come to faith, but who has never really put down deeper and deeper roots. Sure, they're saved. But this might be the kind of person who the Bible talks about being saved as those escaping through the flames. In other words, it's close. 
Now let me pause here and ask you the question then, as we think about these things, as we think about this journey that God has placed us on, do you want to make progress in the Christian life? Is holiness an attractive thing for you? Do you want to be godly, more and more like Jesus? I feel the challenge of this. I felt the challenge of it for three months. And I want to impress upon us as a church family the challenge of this. I'm not about to call us to legalistic, do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I'm calling us to apply the truths of the gospel to ourselves in a much deeper fashion so that we take sin more seriously than we do and take God's great purpose of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth more serious also. Because you'll see something about these two journeys we're talking about is that they kind of converge. They're really one and the same purpose. You see, it's mature believers. It's people, believers like us, who grow in holiness, who grow in the knowledge and understanding and the grace of the Lord that are more likely to be the ones that share the gospel, that see change not only in our lives, but in the lives that we come into contact with. Now, listen, God sent his son for this purpose, to make you more like Jesus. God has sent his spirit to live in you as a believer to empower us in this. And yet we waste it. When I was on holiday in America, I got this great news when I went to hire a car that I was getting a free upgrade. You ever had that? And I, I was going to get a, a big enough car to carry our cases, but I went in and said, sorry, Mr. Garvey, but that T-level car that you're not looking for, that you're looking for, isn't available. We're going to have to give you a Z-level car. And I was like, hang on, is A better or is Z better? And she went, oh, Z's better. And I was like, yeah, beauty. She didn't understand what I said. Um, uh, I was like, yeah, beauty. And so I went out to the car park and the chap said, there's your car over there. It was not a car. It was a tank. <laughs> it was huge. It was like this five and a half liter Yukon and it even had the words XL on it. Like nobody, we did not need to be told that this car was extra large. Now, what do you think I did with a car with that much power in it? Do you think I drove it really safely? Yes, of course I did. I'm very careful. My wife and kids were in the car. But was there an occasion or two where on a quiet road, setting off from a traffic light perhaps, just saw what kind of power was in that car? You better believe I did. Absolutely. I believe in the Christian life. We live life in such a way that we fail to recognize the power that God has put in our hearts, as 2 Peter 1 says, for participation in the divine nature. That everything that we need for life and godliness has been given to us. God supplies the power for our, our sanctification. But by the way we live our lives and the way we apply or fail to apply the gospel to ourselves, it's like we're driving this great big XL tank and not even putting our foot down. And it's an indictment on us. The Lord Jesus 
came to die for our sanctification and our salvation and our glorification. He came to put his spirit to live in us, to put power into our Christ-likeness and our pursuit of it. And God has made this holiness a crucial part of our witness to this dead and hell-directed world. God has invested a lot in us, right? The stakes are high. Pray that God would help us want to make progress, to desire God and desire holiness. What are you most passionate about? Is holiness up there in your responses? Well, that's mapping out the journey for us. Secondly, let's, let's look at how we make progress. To answer this, we need to know how this middle bit of sanctification actually works, what God uses to make us more like Jesus. This is, if you like, knowing the road conditions. Uh, time for another picture. Uh, a car this time. I did not spend my sabbatical just doodling, by the way, like drawing things. Uh, I think these illustrations are helpful. Uh, David Paulison, in his book, How Sanctification Works, uh, identifies five key factors that help us progress on this journey towards sanctification. And trust me, there are no, um, there are no, um, <laughs> how ironic, I'm trying to think of an intelligent thing to say and struggling to say it. Anyway, no, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> anyway, I'm going to move on, forget it. Uh, right, no original thoughts, there you go. I even struggled to think of an original thought to say that I don't have original thoughts, just to prove my point. There you go. Okay. Uh, these are leaning heavily on books that I've read in my study leave and uh, thankful to books like uh, Paulison's How Sanctification Works, Andy Davis, An Infinite Journey for some of these insights. But uh, Paulison talks about these five factors that really play their part in making us and helping us grow in Christ-likeness. Uh, so first of all, he starts with God, of course. I mean, God is, according to the New Testament, personally present and wonderfully at work in our salvation. Philippians 2 highlights this for us, doesn't it? It is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So he is the one who intervenes in our lives. He turns us from this suicidal self-will to the kingdom of life, to living for him in accordance with his will. All the way along, he helps us choose wisely. He helps us put off the old self, helps us put on the new self that is being renewed daily. And he is immediately and personally present in a million ways, whether we see them or don't see them. He is. And of course, I struggle to see, to know exactly where, where, should, where should I put God in this depiction, this illustration here. He's really involved in the whole picture. But certainly, he is a driving force behind us helping us move forward. So obviously, knowing him and recalling in our minds regularly, reminding one another of these things, that he is personally and intimately involved in each and every one of our lives. He's not some distant deity. He is in you by the Holy Spirit. And we need to remind each other of these things, especially when we're weighed down by guilt or shame. When we're the ones who try and take a step back and think by not coming to church, by not talking to our Christian friends, we're putting some distance in between us and God and keeping things nice and safe. But he's in you. There's nowhere you can run, nowhere you can hide. So embrace this and see this 
as a confirmation of the fact that God is gracious in moving towards you and active. He's ready to help you change. Second thing, truth. Truth changes us. God's truth is the engine, really, that propels us. John 17, Jesus said, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. And of course, when we read the Bible, when we hear it preached, when we do it individually, when we study it in small groups, when we just drop a word of scripture that we've maybe memorized into the conversation, God is addressing our hearts, revealing the lies of the enemies. He's shown us how life works. He's shown us how life doesn't work. And above all, brothers and sisters, remind each other of this. It shows us a person. It, it points us to Jesus. This is key. The Bible doesn't just give you truth to believe in. It presents a person to love. One who, of course, loves you deeply. These are the scriptures that testify about me, Jesus said. It's all about him. And this is why the truth of God's word, read, taught, sung, preached, studied, applied, is one of the surest means by which God helps us to make progress. It is a crucial part of his plan. So let me ask you, do you read it? Even a verse of it. A day. Even that verse that's maybe lodged in your mind to meditate on it, to tumble it around in your head and let the truth of it warm, and warm your heart. Are you a part of a small group in the life of the church? Because God is designing this wonderful thing called sanctification that his spirit-inspired word together and talked over by his spirit-filled people is a key and crucial means of our sanctification. So, I mean, I don't even care if you're in, a, in a, a formalized group, like a growth group or yak or timeout or something like that, but if you're not doing it with anybody, you'll dry up like an unwatered plant. If, if, if that's you, and at the same time you're thinking, I'm really struggling to grow. I'm really struggling with all these sins. Then put those things together. Join a group. Think over these things together. Even for prayer. So read God's word. Study it. Talk about it. It's a crucial means by which God helps us grow in sanctification. Thirdly, wise people. Just been referencing this as well, and as you'll see, there's a little bit of overlap between all of these. This is about making sure you've got the right passengers in the car. We know what it's like to have unhelpful passengers in the car. The Bible is amazingly honest about the company that we keep and the influence of it. I mean, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. Or Proverbs 13, 20, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise. And here's where we see that when we involve ourselves in one another's lives, seeking to be wise, seeking to be a godly influence on each other, with the same goal of growing in Christ-likeness, then this honesty and graciousness, humility, clarity, a good sense of true biblical conviction, these are all the things that help us have a fruitful effect on each other's lives. 
How many times have we been lost in some kind of situation, not really understanding exactly how to get ourselves out of it? And then we speak to someone about it, and there's just this little Bible reference that they make or a word of wisdom that is clearly Christian. And we're like, it just clears the fog. It just helps us see. Well, God puts wise people in our lives for our sanctification. Another reason why, by the way, we should seek to grow in wisdom through reading the Word under point two. And it's a great mercy, really. I love this about the church. It's a great mercy to know people who deal gently with our ignorance and waywardness, not because they think that they're better than you, not in the slightest, but because they see the same weaknesses and errors in themselves. It's bizarre. I mean, I sometimes find it easier to help other people than I do to help myself. I've got I've got clarity with some biblical counsel that I'm going to share with someone in a particular situation. But I'm the one who'll sit, you know, or lie in bed at night awake because I'm worrying about something. If only I applied the same truth to myself. Well, this is where the local church family comes into its own. And fellowship proves itself to be more than just a cup of tea and a digestive. It's a meaningful contribution in one another's lives as we speak and sing and pray the word of God to each other as a committed local church. God brings about transformation in us through his spirit-filled people. As Paul Tripp puts it, change is a community project. Fourth thing, hardship, suffering. I think this is probably the biggest thing that hit me in my studies. The, way, the place of suffering in our sanctification. I'll talk a little bit later on the fact that sometimes our sanctification seems quite slow. As 2 Corinthians 3 says, it's, it gives the impression it's a bit by bit, incremental, slow progress. But as I look back on my life and I think, where are the periods where I've seen kind of accelerated growth in my faith, where I have clung to Jesus with more fervor than I had before or walked in greater assurance of something in my faith or something in my life? It has been through times of trial, without question. No one wants it. We don't wish it on each other. We don't pray for it for other people, but life is hard enough, and the hard knocks come. But suffering and hardships, not just, isn't, it isn't just experienced in these occasional, sporadic traumas in life, not in just the big things of life, but I actually think we underplay and discount the day-to-dayness, the day-to-day hardships of the Christian life. Don't you feel this? You know, you can wake up in the morning and before you've even got up to pray, before you've even put the kettle on, you've come face-to-face with your own sinfulness. Day-to-day hardships have a massive impact on us. From the tired mum who never gets a rest to the guy who bottles up his doubts and diminishing faith because he worries about what people will say about him to the child who hears their parents arguing again. In all sorts of situations we experience, we all do, ongoing suffering and hardship of different degrees that makes life difficult. But God is at work using even these little things and the major traumas, no doubt. 
to put perspective on our walk with the Lord and his purpose in this world. Isn't that true? I was at the mission prayer meeting on Wednesday night and heard Katie Wilson talking about uh, what life's been like for those guys out in Rift Valley Academy and how Daniel, of course, as we prayed for him regularly, was very, very unwell, touch and go with cholera at one point. Well, I, I'm not surprised in the slightest that one of the next things that she said was that, you know, it really cemented him in his faith and he got baptized. Not surprised in the slightest. Because God uses these hardships to remind us of what's true. And even if someone else intends them for evil, as Peter was talking to us about a couple of weeks ago, God can use them for good and for his purposes. We know this, right? In Romans 5, Paul writes, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Please stop there, Paul. No, he doesn't. Not only so, but we also glory. Are you sure you really want to use the word glory here? Well, he says yes. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Wow. Martin Luther called this trial and difficulty the touchstone of Christian experience. One of the key ways that God's people are changed and transformed. He said hardships were his greatest teacher because they made scripture and prayer come alive to him. That's true. We know that's true. Now, people change because something is hard, not because everything goes well. And that's good to know because life is hard, right? So that means that we need to be all the more careful and all the more attentive of each other, maybe even a little bit more open as individuals, so that we can strengthen, come alongside, stabilize each other when we're struggling. There's a time when you're going to need me to do that for you. There's a time when I'm going to need you to do that for me. So let's practice in the day-to-dayness, shall we? So that when the traumas come, we can use the word glory for our sufferings, just as Paul did. And see how God is making us bit by bit into the likeness of his son through them. Fifthly, you change. You change. Every time you choose to accelerate, slow down for the hazards, turn the wheel, every time you turn towards something good and not evil, when you when you mortify the flesh, the sinful nature, and strangle the life out of it, when you detest your anger and prefer mercy, you're changing. Yeah, God's at work in it with you, but you're getting it. God has given you understanding. This knowledge of the truth has led you to 
faith, you believe God, you take him at his word, it's had an impact on your character, it's started to change your life, and fundamentally it works on your actions. You do something different. Knowledge, faith, character, action, there's the ins and outs of sanctification. It's what God's doing in us. Now life is a complex mix of all five of these. The Lord works in a variety of ways for our sanctification. I was quite annoyed about that. <laughs> I, was, I was thinking in my sabbatical, I would really quite like to simplify things. I want that one key truth, one principle to live by. Life is so much easier that way. But the Bible shows it was sanctification. There's no single key. All these things are important. The proactive and the reactive. Sanctification is multifaceted. And our experience confirms that as well. Because when you look closely at your life or someone else's life, how do they actually change? How do they become more godly? Maybe you want to ask, where do people get stuck? What eventually brings out the transformation? Often, it's a combination of two or three or all of these things. So what? Okay, we've mapped out the journey, point one. Now, this is, we've mapped out the road conditions. These are the things that we know what to expect on the journey, the things that will get us there. Thirdly, how do we plan for this journey? What should, we, what should we know and what should we do? This is number three. Well, first of all, in this, five quick things. Bear with me. You're listening well. Uh, it takes effort. Can we go to the next slide, please? Growing in Christ-likeness, we have to understand, is neither apathy nor activism. As I mentioned earlier, God supplies the power, but you actually have to roll up your sleeves and do some digging. So we need to devote ourselves to hearing his voice, having his ear, belonging to his body, and to train ourselves for godliness. Secondly, there should be no idling. This is a dangerous thing in sanctification. There's no, standing still will not do. The aggressive pull of this sin-satiated world and the driving push of the Holy Spirit within us means that there's no standing still. You're either progressing or you're regressing, advancing or even reversing. But the Christian life is best lived and God our Father is best pleased not by us planting two feet on the ground and holding fast, but by putting one foot in front of the other and moving forward one grace-empowered step at a time. Thirdly, growth comes most often in tiny steps, not in giant leaps. I think we learn a lot from Dave Brailsford. In 2010, he faced a tough job as a, appointed the team boss of uh, Team Sky, Great Britain cycling team. And he was tasked with finding this rider that no British rider had done, you know, to, done before to win the Tour de France. Everyone was asking how. And his approach was really, really simple. Brailsford said, we overestimate the importance of some major change and underestimate the value of making small changes on a daily basis. So I employ a principle known as the aggregation of marginal gains. Now, Brailsford believed that in every area of cycling, you can improve by just 1%. Then those small gains add up to a remarkable overall improvement. So he'd started by optimizing all the things that you would expect, like the weight of the bike, the shape of the tires, shape of the helmet, you know, the, the nutrition and the weight of the, the, the riders. But he didn't stop there. He looked for 1% improvements in everything, even to the point of recognizing that if people got a better night's sleep the night before a race, they performed better. 
So they started to take their own pillows and duvets and stuff with them to make sure that they got a better sleep. So Brailsford believed that if they could make tiny improvements in every area, then Team Sky would be in a position to win the Tour de France within five years. But he was wrong. They won it in three. When tw in 2012, Bradley Wiggins crossed the finish line in Paris. And I think that's a useful illustration for us for what it looks like to grow in Christ-likeness. We can feel overwhelmed by the goal of it. We can underestimate the value of making small changes on a daily basis and how over time it can make all the difference. It can. But recognize, fourthly, it's a long journey. It's a long journey in one direction. You see, sanctification is as much about persistence as it is about perfection. That's why we read in the Bible all the time about these words like perseverance and endurance. That's why people who are, who, who, who are continuing in their faith despite what's going on, despite hardships, are actually commended. That's why the Apostle Paul celebrates these things often, and Peter too, and James, of, of these things as victories. And it's true. And lastly, to close, be prepared on this journey for the grand vistas that await. Because in the end, it'll all be worth it. Keep reminding each other of the destination. Think about where we're headed. Let that, oh, that day when freed from sinning, when I see thy lovely face, full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing your sovereign grace. That's what it's about, isn't it? It's what we were singing about earlier. As we look forward to that day when we'll be with him in glory. Because when you grow in the grace and knowledge, you grow in amazement at God. Not just as you look forward to that day, but as you look at God himself. Not just on that day when you see him, sorry, but in the day-to-dayness of this Christian life. I love the scene in Prince Caspian where um, Lucy meets Aslan again. Aslan, said Lucy, you're bigger. That is because you're older, little one, answered he. Not because you are, she said. No, I am not. But every year you grow, you will find me bigger. How true that is of those who go deeper in their faith and grow to be more and more like Jesus God who seems great to us in the day-to-dayness just now, as we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, will be even greater in our sight. And of course, that's as true as that is as we progress in this journey toward perfection. Wow, how true that will be when at last we arrive, seeing the Holy One himself and being holy as he is. That's why sanctification matters. We're on a journey every believer, toward perfection. Let's pray and ask God's help as we journey it. Our Father, thank you so much for this free and gracious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ, that you look down on us as unlovely and as putrid as we are in our sin. You reach down to pull us out of the dirt and the depths of our sins taking us from darkness, bringing us into the kingdom of your son, bringing us salvation and giving us your spirit to live in us. Thank you for the promise 
that you have made of our glorification, of that full and final redemption and adoption as sons and daughters of yours on that day to come when Christ returns in all his splendor and glory. And I pray that as we look forward to it, we might do so actively, seeking to become what we now behold in Jesus, the righteous one. Lord, we struggle in so many ways to change. Sinfully, we forget about the impact that it has on our life together as a church family, on our witness of Christ and the gospel to the city and to the world. And sinfully, we forget that an impoverished view of this can bring your name into disrepute. Thank you for your gracious help in bringing these things to our attention that we might by your spirit, rest on your grace, press the reset, and live uh, wholeheartedly in community for you, seeking to grow in the likeness of Jesus, to be transformed into his glory with ever-increasing glory. Uh, help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to close